This past Friday on January the 8th, it was the 10th anniversary of the assassination attempt of Gabriella uh, Giffords. You remember Gabby Giffords was a, a congresswoman from Tucson, Arizona. She'd already been serving in Congress for four years. She'd been reelected. She was so outgoing and she was so positive, never met a stranger. She was holding what she called Congress on the Corner. She'd already held more than 20 of these events throughout her area, her district. It was a place where she would simply set up with her staff and people could come. They could visit, have their picture taken with her. They could ask questions. They could express needs. They could explain discontent or how they didn't agree. It was a time for her to make herself available and then to be able to listen to people, to get to know them. She enjoyed holding these Congress on the corner. It was at 10 o'clock a.m. on a Saturday morning, January the 8th, 2011. She was in a Safeway parking lot. She was there with her staff. They had been setting up. People started coming by to greet the congresswoman. And then there was a young man, Jared Loudner. Turned out that he had a semi-automatic pistol and he started shooting into the crowd. Before he was subdued, six people would be killed. A 30-year-old staffer, a federal judge, a nine-year-old girl who had come to Congress on the corner to meet Gabby, to have her picture taken with her because she had been inspired and said, I think I want to run for Congress one day. Thirteen people were wounded some more seriously than others, maybe no one more seriously than Gabby. He'd shot her in the head. At first it was announced that she had died, but then they found that that was not the case. She was at the hospital fighting for her life. She would survive. She has spent the last 10 years now in rehabilitation and, and going through all the therapy to try to get better, and she has gotten so much better. She is now able to walk. Though she still struggles with her right leg and her right arm, she has to use a cane to help her, but she can walk. Her mind is fine. She's able to think. She has recall. Her mind is fine, but speech is very difficult. Getting the words out. She's getting better and better, but it's still a struggle. She spends her week. She goes to yoga twice a week. She's learning to play the French horn. Her favorite song, Amazing Grace. Now she's learning how to play the French horn. She's learning how to speak Spanish. She's doing all these different things in order to be able to try to continue to rehabilitate and get stronger and better and move back into the world. The man who shot her, Jared, 22 years old. It turned out that growing up he had been known as a sweet and kind young man, but his senior year in high school, his girlfriend broke up with him, and the way that he handled that rejection was he started drinking, and then he started with drugs, and they got stronger, and he began to withdraw more and more from friends and other people, and as he isolated himself, he got more involved on the internet and, and social media, began reading about conspiracy theories, 
He began caught up in the idea that there's a dark state trying to control people. The government wasn't treating him fair. And that's why he went there that morning with the intent on assassinating his, his congresswoman. He was taken into custody. He is now in prison and will be there for life. This past Wednesday, Gabby was in Washington, D.C. She was setting up an apartment for she and her husband. Her husband is Mark Kelly. You remember the astronaut who now has run and got elected as a freshman senator from the state of Arizona. And she was setting up their apartment in Washington, D.C. And he was in the Capitol when a group of radicalized Americans, a mob that believed in all of these conspiracy theories and that the government was a deep state trying to harm people, they stormed the Capitol. And now he had to go into sheltering and hiding. Can you imagine how Gabby felt? I mean, this is two days before the 10th anniversary of her assassination attempt, and now she's watching this on TV, fearful for her husband, the same spirit. In the end, of course, Mark was fine. But on Friday, they were doing an interview on the 10th anniversary of her being shot. And they were talking about things, and, and it was interesting to see how Gabby was so optimistic, so positive, still that same fiery, cheerful, spark self. They asked her, did you ever go back and look at all the media coverage of when you had been shot? And she said that she and Mark had talked about it, but she said, no, no, she never has. From the time that she started coming to and confronting what all had happened to her, she began a mantra, move ahead, move ahead, move ahead. And she said, that's all that I focus on, moving ahead. I really think that's where we find ourselves right now in 2021. Needing to make the decision that we are moving ahead. You know, when we came to the end of 2020, we were all so excited. 2020 had been such a difficult year in so many different ways. Coronavirus, economic struggles, struggles going on in our government, that there are political tensions happening, ice storms. I mean, you name it, 2020 had it. And we were all glad to see it go and get to 2021. And what we've already discovered in the first few weeks is the coronavirus hadn't gone away. More people are getting sick per day than ever before. More people are in the hospitals. They are overrun. People are dying. We have a vaccine and it's beginning to roll out. I think so many of us thought once we got past the election then all this contentiousness and arguing and bitter, it'd be over. And then we watch what happened last Wednesday with a riotous mob storming Congress. No, right now it is sure easy to have enough of these things that you start to feel like you're losing hope. But as you and I begin this new year, we must not abandon hope. We must not abandon our commitment to love our neighbor with no exception. 
It's because of loving our neighbor and living in a spirit of hope that you and I can make this year different and it can be better. And we can't quit on that. I believe it is going to be a good year and a year of change and we will be continuing to get better and I believe heal as a nation, but also just individually. That's why this morning I want to continue on with the sermon series that the Reverend Wendy Lambert started last week, Love Without Exception. Our theme for this year, again, is going to be love your neighbor, no exception. We're going to talk about it all year long because I believe it's such an important message for each of us individually, it's as a church, as a country. And what we decided to do to start this year off was by looking at Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the 13th chapter, and for seven weeks we are going to go through this Paul's letter, seeing what it means to really call to love the way that Christ has loved us. As the disciples of Jesus Christ, how do you and I go about truly loving without exception? Last week we were reminded that Paul's writing this letter to a church that's very successful. The church in Corinth has been growing, winning new people. It has been very successful and people are proud of how hard they're trying to speak in tongues or how generous they can be or how much they're willing to sacrifice they're all striving to do these right things, but Paul sees them getting off track because they're forgetting the most important thing, and that's how to love each other. Paul says, look, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have all prophetic powers, if I understand all mysteries, if I have all knowledge, if I have faith to move mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. What we want to be reminded of as we begin this year together is this fundamental call to love without exception. For if we will start the year remembering how we have been loved by Christ, and we choose to love one another, then we can go into this year and sustain our hope and find the meaning that we are looking for as we seek to love one another. So this morning, I want to look at Paul and continue on with the verses we read and are reminded of three other things that Paul now says, love is not. Three things that love is not. And so what is love? First of all, Paul says love is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. What an important word for our world right now. Love is not arrogant or rude. Insist on its own way. You know, you and I live in a time in our society when we have found it so much more permissible to be rude to be arrogant, to insist on our own way. It's just different right now. You can see the change happening over the last 10, 15 years. I think there's many different reasons and we can talk about those sometime. But I think one of the reasons is because of social media. It's hard to remember. It all seems like it's been here forever. Facebook didn't really get going until about 15 years ago. Twitter, 10 years ago. I mean. These are new things, and we haven't fully learned how to use them yet in all wonderful ways. 
then we have found that through social media, it is so easy to be so angry and so condemning, saying things that we never would have said in person. But now that we've gotten used to being so angry and arrogant and rude, it comes even easier doing it in person with one another in ways that we would never have dreamed in the past. And yet it's become a part of who we are. But you and I are the followers of Christ. We are the, the uh, people who imitate Christ. Christ was not arrogant and rude. We are not called to be a Pontius Pilate. Arrogant, rude, insisting on his own way. We are called to be the followers of the man who was so humble. The man who would eat with the sinners and the poor, the outcast, the women. The man who showed incredibly what does it mean to love without exception. It was a year ago, a year ago right now, that Reverend Phil Greenwald and Reverend Wendy Lambert and Reverend Josh Attaway and myself, we all traveled up to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to go have an interview and to meet Rabbi Myers. Rabbi Myers was the rabbi at the Tree of Life Synagogue there in Pittsburgh, which only about a year before that had gone through a horrible mass shooting. We wanted to interview him and talk about what did he feel like happened? How did he believe they should respond? What does their faith say? He was a wonderful man and we really loved visiting with him, going to the synagogue, seeing where things had happened. But we also went out to Latrobe Latrobe, Pennsylvania is where they have the museum for Fred Rogers. And here at St. Luke's, we'd been talking all about Fred Rogers and, and we wanted to go to his museum and learn more about him. Well, it's not a large place. It's called the Center of Learning of Fred Rogers uh, Learning Center. Um, it, it's there on a small college campus uh, started by the Benedictines, St. Vincent College. It was a beautiful, beautiful place. The museum wasn't really all that big, but it had lots of the original, whether it was going to be puppets or different things, and showed the chronology of how this ministry of Fred Rogers and the neighborhood all began to develop. Well, we were out there looking at all of it. We were the only ones who were there. A lady came out and she said, uh, may I help you? I said, well, we're, we're four Methodist ministers from Oklahoma who wanted to come and learn about Fred Rogers. We came all this way to see the museum. Well, that caused a stir. That didn't happen every day. She went back into the back, and in a moment, the executive director came out, Roberta Schromberg. Roberta turned out to be the most lovely, charming, wonderful lady. She was so thrilled that we were there, and she started talking to us about Fred. She had known Fred personally very well. And then she said, why don't you come on in the back? She led us through some doors back into their office area. People were still there working, working on childhood development curriculum and different ideas. But she led us back to an area where now there were other things. There were the puppets, the original puppets that Fred used when he started creating the land of make-believe. And we got to see those. We saw the shoes. You remember he'd come out and sit down every day and put on his tennis shoes. We saw all those tennis shoes there that they had with so many of the awards that he had received. She led us back to his office, and when we got back to her office, she said, well, right there in the corner, you see that brown leather stuffed chair? That, that was Fred's chair. That's where he sat when he was trying to write all these scripts. 
When Tom Hanks came to town and they were going to film It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, they came and got that chair because they wanted to have everything authentic. Tom Hanks sat in that chair. I looked at it for a moment and I said, May I sit in that chair? She said, Certainly. I went over and I sat down and I thought, Now this is the chair that Fred, Tom, and Bob sat in. It was so comfortable and it was so fun. And we just were talking and having a good time. We finally got up and walked back out of her office when we walked into another room and suddenly I saw it. I knew what it was. It was this beautiful Steinway grand piano. I knew it had to be Fred's. I knew the story. I said, is this Fred's piano? Yes, it is. Fred grew up in a family that was very wealthy. You don't really know that about him, but he grew up in a family that was the wealthiest family in town, great entrepreneurs. But he never was just spoiled. He never really asked for lots of things. No, that, that wasn't his thing. But as a boy growing up, Fred wanted to be an athlete. And he tried and tried, but he just didn't have much athletic talent. In fact, Fred, growing up in Latrobe, went and took golf lessons from Deacon Palmer, Arnold Palmer's father. And Arnold Palmer would write a book and say, when he came and took lessons, he proved without a doubt that he had no latent athletic ability. That wasn't his strength. What his strength was, was music. At five years old, he could sit down at the piano and he could hear a song and then he would manage to play it. No, he had that gift. And he was continuing to learn how to get better and better playing. And at 10 years old, he went to his grandmother and said, I really would like something. I would like a piano. A piano that I could, is a great piano that would help me grow in my music that I could have all my life. And so she gave him an address there in Pittsburgh. They had another home. They were living in Pittsburgh. And it was about four miles away. And it was for the Steinway Company. And at 10 years old, he got on the trolley by himself. He rode down, went to the Steinway Company, went inside. And he spent the rest of the day sitting at pianos, playing them and trying them all out. And finally, he said to the salesman, I'll take this one. Now, this piano that he chose was made in 1920. It was a grand piano. It had gone through a, an heirloom renovation in New York. It was in mint condition. In today's dollars, it would be about $70,000. And he said, I'll take that one. And the salesman said, well, you must have a very lucrative paper route. He said, I'll be back, but would you please put a hold on it? He went back to his grandmother. He told her the price. She wrote a check. He got on the trolley, came back and said, here's a check. Could you deliver it to Latrobe, please? It was delivered to his home in Latrobe, and that's what he began to play on. And he would have it the rest of his life. When he moved to New York and had a small flat, they had to bring it up outside the building and then come in through the window. But he had it. When he lived in Atlanta, he had it. When he moved back to Pittsburgh, he had it. He had it all the days of his life. And I looked at this piano and I said, could we sit there? Yes. I said, could we actually play it? Well, yes. 
Wendy Lambert sat down and she began to play. And then Josh sat down and he began to play. And then I sat down and I touched the keys. But while I sat there, I thought, this is where Fred Rogers sat when he composed It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. It's where he sat when he composed I Like You Just the Way You Are. And I'm sitting there thinking about all that Fred Rogers had accomplished, the millions of children's lives he had touched. And I said to Roberta, when you think of Fred Rogers, what's the one word you use to describe him? And without hesitating, she said, he was the most humble man I ever met. He came from a family of great wealth. He never flaunted it. You would never know. Here he had all these accomplishments. He was so successful and received so many awards. Never mentioned them. Here he's on television. And unless you were a child watching in the morning, you would probably not know who Fred Rogers was. He was without a doubt the most humble man I ever met. Fred Rogers was a man of great faith who knew what it meant to be loved by Christ. And so he wanted to turn around and share that love with others. And that love does not allow you to be arrogant or rude or to insist on your own way. You wind up being the servant of all, the one who loves and cares for the powerless and the weak and all people. Maybe as you and I go into 2021, we need to be reminded that love is humble. It is not arrogant or boastful or rude or insist on its own way. And when we live in that spirit of a humble servant, it's when you and I start to find again that spirit of hope and meaning in our lives. But secondly... Love is not irritable or resentful. My goodness gracious, we have plenty of reason to be irritable and resentful. When you look at our time, I mean, when we look at an angry mob storming the Capitol and what was going on, when you look at all the divisive rhetoric when you look at COVID and the struggles we're having right now with the rollout of the vaccine, cities, states, counties trying to do the best they can, but with not enough supplies or even knowledge and awareness, everyone trying to do the best they can. There's plenty to, to feel irritable and resentful about. Unemployment going up again. No, we're facing great struggles. And it is easy to lose hope. But you and I just came through Christmas. And Christmas is where we celebrated the birth of a baby in Bethlehem. The experience of God's love coming into the world, coming for us. And because we've experienced God's love, we are so grateful for the message of Christmas. And if you and I will live in that spirit of gratitude for the gift of God's love, we will not be irritable or resentful. You know, for Christmas, I, I received a gift. It was a book, and it was by Michael J. Fox. It was entitled, 
no time like the future, an optimist ponders mortality. Michael J. Fox, I'll tell you what's so strange, he's 59 years old. I still think of Michael J. Fox as Marty McFly. No, he's now 59 years old. He has Parkinson's. You remember he was diagnosed with Parkinson's when he was 29 years old. For all these years now, for the last 30 years, half of his life, he has had to wrestle with this struggle with Parkinson's and all that it has meant and, and what it has done to him. And yet throughout this whole time, he has been so optimistic. He is so positive. He is so hopeful. And so he's writing a book talking about, you know, looking at mortality now. But he makes this fascinating comment. He says, I have come to discover that the foundation of optimism is gratitude. The foundation of optimism is gratitude. For when you are grateful, you are not going to be resentful and irritable. You're hopeful. That's why I want to ask that you continue on with what we started in, the Lent, in our season of Advent, reading our devotional, starting each morning, and starting with a prayer of gratitude. Before you start asking God for all the things that you need or talking about what you fear, start each prayer with a time of gratitude. And we're asking now you might end each day with our calendar and, and end each night not by watching the evening news and then going to bed, but by taking the time to be able to pray and to give thanks. Go into 2021 living in a spirit of gratitude, for it is the foundation of optimism, of hope. And third, love does not rejoice in the wrong but rejoices in the right. Another way of saying love does not focus on all that is wrong, but it is going to celebrate. It is going to look at. It is going to remember all that is right. It is so easy to focus on all that is wrong and the struggles in our world. You know, I, I said earlier that I think one of the great struggles that has caused our society to go through this change and being rude and arrogant is social media. But I just got to tell you, social media can also be a wonderful tool. It's where families get together. It's where people reconnect. It's where we put on worship. It's where people can find hope and wonderful stories and information. No, it's not the problem. It's how it gets used. And it's how we focus on it. Do you celebrate? Do you focus on all that is wrong? Or do you try to focus on all that is right? And I'm not saying being a Pollyanna and sticking your head in the sand and not knowing what's going on. Of course we do. But if we're not careful, that's what will kill our spirit. It's about also seeing in the midst of all the struggles, there is such beauty and kindness there is love, and you and I can be a part of that generational, of generating love in this world. And it will bless this world, and it will bless our lives. Love does not rejoice in the wrong, it rejoices in the right.
came across a wonderful story about a, a little girl, Eliana. Eliana that was four years old. She lived in L.A. with her mom and dad. Her mom was Emily. And, and she saw the struggles that this pandemic had on Eliana. I mean, she no longer went to preschool. They weren't having kids over for play dates. You know, we all know what the pandemic has done to all of us as adults, but what is the effect and impact it's had on children? And this little four-year-old, she was struggling. And so her mother came up with the idea, why don't we go out and, and let's do something for other people? We will create a little fairy garden out on the sidewalk, there in the little dirt around a tree that you can find a little dirt there in Los Angeles. They'd go out there and create this little fairy garden and put all kinds of trinkets and a little sign on the tree. And the sign simply said, our four-year-old girl made this to brighten your day. Please add to the magic, but don't take it away. These days can be hard, but we're in this together. So enjoy our fairy garden and some nicer weather. With spring coming on there in April, they made this fairy garden and they would go out there to play with it. Well, it just so happened that Kelly Kinney was also living not far from there in some apartments. And 2020 had started off very rough for her. She found herself in a very dark place and feeling very alone and lonely and alienated, isolated. It was hard sometimes to get out of bed and, and try to do anything. She was a wonderful young lady, but she was struggling. And one day she was out taking her walk and as she was walking on the sidewalk, she came across this fairy garden thinking about this little four-year-old who also was struggling in the midst of this pandemic. And suddenly the thought hit her. Wouldn't it be wonderful if somebody answered little Eliana? And so walking home, she started thinking, if I was a fairy, what would my name be? My name would be Sapphire. Now, it didn't hurt that Kelly happened to be a, a person who had a college degree in early childhood development and creative writing. But she got home and she sat down and she wrote a letter. My name is Sapphire. I'm one of the fairies who lives in the tree. I need your help. You see, yesterday a wizard gave me a set of magical lucky dice to give away. But I need to know the person I give them to is worthy. To prove that you are worthy, I need you to say five things to people you love, five nice things to people you love, do three things to someone in need, promise to always be kind and brave, and draw a picture of an animal that I can show to the other fairies. She went back, she scrolled it up, and she put it back into one of the little bowls there. The next day, Eliana and her mother came and they found this letter. She was thrilled. Little Eliana went home and she began to do all these things, make sure she accomplished these chores. And then she wrote a letter back. I have done them. Here's what I said. Here's what I did. She went through listing it all and then put the little letter back. And then when Kelly came by the next day and she saw the letter, she took it home and then she responded to her again. She also brought the dice. She had made them herself. They were big dice that a child could play with and roll 
these little special magic dice that she said, if you will be kind and you will love people, these dice will help you to be blessed. Well, this started going on. The next letter she brought back, she also brought a letter back for the mother and said, here's my name, Kelly Kenny. Here's where I live. Here's my phone number. Um, please feel free to contact me. I'm just a lady who's kind of having a downtime. Well, the two women begin to visit. Kelly said, I wanted her to know this wasn't some weird creep out here. So she started having fun writing back always to Eliana. And she would learn from Emily, so what is she struggling with? What is she afraid of? And she would then write things to help her deal with these issues, trying to also instill values. And she went to go get her all kinds of wonderful little gifts. No, Emily said it was the most amazing thing that this stranger who did not know us put out such effort over the next nine months, buying gifts, writing letters. Eliana wanted to see her friend Sapphire, and so she went and got dressed up as a fairy, managed to take pictures, use the computer, shrink herself down, and scale to other things. So she had a little picture there that Eliana could see. This is what Sapphire looked like. I went on for nine months. And then finally she received word, Kelly did, that, Eliana said they were going to be moving and she wouldn't be at the fairy garden. And she so wanted to be able to see her. So Kelly and Emily talked and Kelly went and got a COVID test. And she got all dressed up and she had written a letter back to Eliana saying, you know, I have to move too. And there is a rule that says whenever a fairy moves for one day, they get to be full size so they can move their things. I have one more gift to give to you, she said. I hope you don't catch me. And Emily and Kelly had arranged for such a time that Eliana came to the garden and when she stood up and turned around, there was Sapphire. The look in her eyes. The two of them hugged. They had a place they could go and sit and they talked for an hour. Just about change, moving, life living in the midst of a pandemic. It was such a beautiful moment. And Emily said, her kindness has blessed my child in ways that is hard to put into words. How it has changed the experience of the last nine months. Foundational values, what it's going to mean for her future. But when you talk to Kelly, she would say, I can't tell you what it's done for me. And what I'd want to say to people is, you don't have to be a fairy. You don't have to have magic. You don't even have to do it for children. You have the ability to choose to be kind, to share love. And when you do, you not only will bless life, it will change your life as well. Love is not arrogant or rude or insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice in the wrong, but it rejoices in the right. 
And that's what fills us with the hope we have found in Christ and enables us to love without exception. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.